and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. In his book, Blink, Malcolm Gladwell points out that until very recently, classical music was the preserve of white men, a phrase that I have come to really dread in recent years. Um, the common bias in the music world was that women simply couldn't play like men. Their lips were different. Their lungs were not as powerful. Their fingers smaller. That didn't seem like a prejudice. It seemed like a fact because when conductors or music directors held auditions, the men always seemed to be better than the women. Now, remember that in those days, auditions were casual affairs, sometimes held in the conductor's dressing room or in his hotel room if he was passing through town. Performances were five, maybe 10 minutes. It didn't really matter, it was believed, because music was music. An expert should be able to listen to the music played and in any circumstance gauge instantly and objectively the quality of the performance. But then along came unions and auditions became much more carefully regulated. Hiring decisions were now made by audition committees rather than just by the conductor. Musicians were identified by number rather than by name. Screens were erected between the judges and the musician. It was because of this change that Abby Conant was able to begin her career as a trombonist some 30 years ago. She had applied to 11 different orchestras all throughout Europe but had only received one invitation to actually audition, and that was for the Munich Philharmonic. The letter began, Dear Herr Conant. Herr Conant. There were 33 candidates for the position, and each one auditioned behind a screen. Abby was number 17, so right in the middle. During the audition, she cracked the note on one of the more complicated pieces. She thought she had lost any chance at a job. As soon as she was finished, she went backstage and collected her belongings. But the judges thought otherwise. They loved her performance. The conductor cried out, that's who we want. And the remaining 16 auditioners uh, were immediately sent home. They went to get uh, Abby, and when she stepped out from behind the screen, everyone was stunned. They expected Herr Conant, but this was Frau Conant. All of which goes to prove that what you expect may not always be what you discover. And if you expect the wrong thing altogether, you may be quite surprised when what you are looking for comes which is an important truth, I think, to underscore in this season of expectation, now in its third week and hurtling now towards Christmas, what you expect largely determines what you will see. John the Baptist, 
whose job it is to help adjust our expectations, John has already stepped on the stage for a brief cameo appearance last week. But this week, he looks a little different than what we saw last week. John, the gospel writer John, um, doesn't include any of the color commentary that we heard from Mark last week. So there's no leather loincloth. There's no vegan diet. Maybe a day or two stubble, very popular these days, but nothing like the wild caveman that we heard about last week. And his word here in the fourth gospel is that he is not the light. He comes to bear witness to the light. He is not the promised Messiah. He comes to point the way. In fact, in some of the most famous paintings of John the Baptist, that's exactly what he is doing. In the memorable Eisenhower uh, altarpiece, Christ on the Cross, for example, um, Matthias Grinwald depicts the scene at Golgotha. So here is Jesus hanging on a cross. His mother Mary is off to his left, fainting in the arms of one of the disciples. And here off to the right is John the Baptist, which is a little unusual because by then John had been beheaded, but we call that author's or artist's license. But he is pointing his bony finger at the cross and saying, this one on the cross, this is the one that you are looking for. Now, on the one hand, I suppose it's completely understandable that John would say what he says. Among you stands one whom you do not know. I mean, after all, not everyone back then got him, right? The scribes and the Pharisees viewed him as a rabble-rouser, as a, a wannabe from the backwater region up in the Galilee. He had no real credentials, nothing save that the crowds were following him like a rock star. The Romans took no notice of him whatsoever. Um, he was just a nuisance who appeared around the holidays. The leaders of the temple resented him, um, probably because they were jealous that the people liked him more than they did them. And the one secular historian who ever mentions Jesus, a man by the name of Josephus, talks more about Jesus' followers than he does about Jesus himself, and none of it is very positive. Among you stands one whom you do not know, John said. And maybe in Jesus' own time, those who didn't recognize him for who he is had good reasons. After all, he wasn't exactly the kind of king or messiah that they were looking for. And if that were true, I suppose so is this. They were probably too busy. They were probably too preoccupied to actually notice that the earth was shifting under their feet. I mean, all that they were trying to do really was to keep a job. They were worried about their home. They were worried about whether their kids would have enough food, whether they would be bullied at the synagogue elementary school. He looked just like a carpenter, not like a rabbi. He certainly didn't look like a messiah, whatever a messiah was supposed to look like. 
among you stands one who you do not know. And it was true. I mean, maybe the last thing on their mind was looking for a Messiah. But today, this many centuries later, I wonder if the tables aren't reversed. I, I wonder if we don't recognize him because we know him too well. I mean, after all, everybody has heard of Jesus by now, right? I mean, the internet, mega churches, all kinds of printed materials. Um, the Bible has been translated into virtually every language. The world knows who he is. We know what to expect of him. He's the man from Galilee with the long flowing white robes and the neatly trimmed beard, about six feet tall, wearing sandals, kind of a Middle Eastern appearance, bordering on North American in most Western movies. He's good with the children. He's good with the seniors. He's committed to the community at large. Wait, is this the job description for the Messiah or the new pastor at Greenfield? And if the world knows all about Jesus, how much more do we have him locked in? He's the child in the manger with the father who was surprised when he first heard the news and the mother who rides into Bethlehem on the back of a donkey so many months pregnant. There was no room in the inn. We know where all of the creche figures belong. The shepherds on one side with the smallest shepherd kneeling down the wise men on the other side, in ascending order, each bearing gifts they traverse afar. We know this. We know all of the Christmas carols, at least the first verse, by heart. So can we really say with any plausibility that what John the Baptist says applies to us? One stands among you whom you do not know. I thought about this week, and the more I thought about it, the more it occurred to me that, you know, even back then, those who knew him best, it turns out really didn't know him. His family, for example, um, they thought they knew him, but then one day he just up and left home, something that no obedient son in those days would have done, abandoning his mother, maybe his father was still alive, um, and for what? To go on a road trip? To take off with this unlikely group of uneducated fishermen and tax collectors? He, he went back to his hometown in Nazareth, where presumably he had grown up. Everybody knew him. They asked him to stand up in the sanctuary and to read the scriptures, and then just to say a few words. And at first, they were so impressed. But then when he went on to say that the scriptures were being fulfilled in his presence, they considered that to be blasphemy. They ran him out of town, out of his hometown. Even the disciples, who presumably were with him every day, they never quite got him. There was that time, you remember, at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says to them, you know, what are they saying? Who do people say that I am? And one of them says, well, some people say you're like John the Baptist reincarnated. The others are saying you're like Elijah the prophet. Well, who do you say I am? He went on. And Simon Peter, 
good old impetuous Simon, um, he goes right to the head of the class. He says, well, I think you are the Christ. And uh, no sooner has he been able to pull his desk towards the front of the classroom than he has to take it all the way back because it becomes clear immediately that he has virtually no idea what that means for Jesus or for him. So is it possible to know him so well, to know all about him, but not really know him, to not recognize him right there in your midst? As a preacher, I have to confess, this is one of the hazards of the job. I have now preached on this over the last 30 or 40 years multiple times. As far as I'm concerned, there are no new surprises here for me. There are no new messages. And really, which of us cannot identify with those back then who were just too busy? They were too preoccupied making a living and, and making sure that the kids stay on track, not to mention getting ready for the holidays. Too preoccupied to really notice him. A number of years ago now, um, when I was on sabbatical, I spent a week at the Shalem Institute outside of Washington, D.C., a chance to focus on spirituality and prayer. Um, as part of that experience, uh, we spent 36 consecutive hours in silence, something that does not come naturally to me. Um, one of the resources that Shalem made available to us for that prayer time was a set of icons, these beautiful art pieces um, that can help you in your prayer life. Now, like many of you, I was not familiar with icons. That's something that people from the Eastern Orthodox tradition know much better than we Protestants. In fact, we have always been leery of them, thinking that they might become idols for us. I have come to think that they're more like windows, really, through which we can catch a glimpse of God. Anyway, one evening, I took a seat in front of one of those icons, um, a picture of Mary, the Madonna, holding the baby. She is holding Jesus in her arms, and yet at the same time, just because of the way his arms are wrapped around her neck, it was almost like he was also holding her. And Jesus is looking at her, and she is looking at me with these eyes that were so sad, just filled with compassion. I sat there silently, not really knowing what to expect, when from somewhere this question began to arise. I don't want you to think I heard a voice. I don't want you to lose you that quickly. Um, but from somewhere, it was as if Mary was saying to me, would you like to hold the baby? And of course, when a newborn mother says that to you in the maternity room or at home, um, that is really quite an honor. But in this case, I was so aware of the sorrow in her eyes. It was as almost as though Jesus was looking through her and at me. 
And I was aware that to take this baby in my arms was in a sense to share in the pain that he felt. What pain? I don't know. Maybe a whole society living under the grips of a pandemic. Maybe the pain of all those who are sick. Maybe the grief of all those who have lost loved ones. Maybe all those who are feeling left out or left behind, whether it's on the school playground or in our society as a whole. Would you like to hold the baby? And for all in me that wanted to say yes, I was so aware that there was a huge part of me that wanted to say no. This baby comes with too many strings attached. He demands way too much of me. Thank you, you're so generous, but. And then, not suddenly, but gradually, it was like a second wave came over me. And this time, it was like those eyes were not so much looking at me as through me to that place I never want other people to go. I don't even like to go myself. It was to that place where all of my hurts, all the places um, where other people or where life has inflicted pain on me resolves. And it was as though Jesus was looking at those and wanting to share those. And it was incredibly comforting and yet also unsettling. Because like so many of you, I am much more comfortable comforting others' hurts than I am having them comfort my hurts. And then finally, there was one more wave that came in. Only this time, it was like, like the sadness in Mary's eyes was not because of my wounds and my pain, but rather because of the pain that I have caused others, the things that I have done or maybe failed to do. And as I sat there, some of those memories just lapped up on the, on the shores of my consciousness. And I knew that he knew what I often keep hidden from myself. And when all of that was quite enough, thank you, I got up from my seat and I went out into the parking lot uh, for the retreat center. And there, in one of those incredible serendipitous moments, the sun was just beginning to set over this beautiful Maryland cornfield. And somehow, it was as if God was saying to me, and in spite of it all, in spite of all this, this and so much more is for you, just for you, as it was for the other 10 or so other wounded children of God who were standing there taking in that beautiful scene. Now, you know, I don't typically share those kind of experiences. And I don't want you to think that I have those kind of experiences all the time because I don't think that's the way prayer or life itself works. 
But I do have to say that looking back, it was, it was as though I was like the, the old patriarch Jacob, who you remember at one point in his journeys wakes up and he says, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. I think Christmas is sort of our annual reminder that the world is as pregnant with the presence of God as was Mary's belly in those days. God loves you. God loves me this much that God chose to come into the world so that we might know him so that we might understand that we are fully known and even more deeply loved. And Advent, then, is our annual reminder of what is always true, and that is that this God we serve is never coercive. He will never force his way into your heart, but rather he invites you. Would you like to hold the baby? So let our prayer in these next few days be this simple and this profound. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen.